So hey, if you, if you go back to where we used to have coffee here at Shaliford, you'll see a couple of posters and a couple of different emphases on the wall. And we're going to turn that corner kind of into our missions corner. We're going to talk about locally and internationally and nationally mission partners and ways you can be involved, ways you can be praying. And so before you leave today, stop by. Right now it says connect. We're going to have a cool sign that says you are sent. And uh, right now we have two things up there. One's about our mission trip in Honduras, ways you can pray, ways you can give, and actually ways you can donate. So make sure you stop by there. We'll talk more about that at the end of the service. And then you see uh, Encourage Global, Alan KK, who were here for about five and a half years. And uh, he was the lead pastor here for five of those years. They just moved back to North Carolina, but we support their ministry called Encourage Global. You can go read more about that and learn how to pray for them. So make sure you stop by that at some point today. Uh, it's so good to see you. It's so good to be back together. We're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 16. Matthew 6, verse 16. This is the words of Jesus. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus, we want to see you in the text this morning. We want to see what you're inviting us to, and we want to follow you. So would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? And as you speak, pray that we'd recognize your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus is in a section of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. And he gives some instructions. Now, the same idea is paralleled in all three sections. Hey, don't do these things for this outward show so that you can get rewards and praises from people. Rather, when you give and when you pray and when you fast, do it in secret so that your Father, God, your Heavenly Father, he'll see you in secret. And you'll get his reward versus the reward from other people. But this last section, he says, when you fast. And as I was thinking about this section this week, it brought me back to when we uh, actually bought our first house. And my dad was being a good dad and walking us through some things we ought to be doing to the house. Or maybe we had been living there for a little bit. And at one point during our first few months, he made a passing comment about... um, Hey, when you're changing your air filter every three or four months, and I was like, oh, back up. Need to be changing that. Okay. Noted. Or or I think about when I take my car to the car shop, and they talk to me like I'm a coworker versus somebody who needs to take my car to a car shop. They say, hey, well, when you're doing this under the hood, and I'm like, hey, you open the hood, brother, not me. Right? And there's these moments in life where someone might talk to you. Oh, Carrie and I do this kind of as a joke to each other. We'll both be sitting on the couch and we'll say, hey, while you're up, will you get me a drink? While the other one's sitting right there on the couch. And it's kind of this joke like, will you please get up and get me a drink? But there's this assumption uh, that you're doing something. And in all of these situations, whether it's a house and you don't know what to do to take care of your house Uh, sign me up when we first bought a house. Maybe you take your car to the mechanic. Maybe you're at home. Maybe it's a new job. We kind of had some laughs this week in our gospel community talking about you go to a new job and maybe your old job didn't have meetings or didn't use a calendar, so you need to learn how to do those things. And they're like, hey, when you're you're putting this thing on your calendar to to schedule everyone and you're like, pause, where's the calendar? 
You just say, when you're on the calendar, where's the calendar? They assume you're doing something that you actually may not be doing. For most of us, Matthew 6, verse 16 may be that moment. Jesus says, when you fast, here's how you do it. And we need to go, wait, Jesus. Should I be fasting? Because you said, when you fast, and I'm thinking, when was the last time I fasted? Jesus may be assuming that we're doing something that we're actually not doing. We're saying, wait, back up. What's fasting? Do I need to be fasting? And we may not even be sure what it is or how to do it or why we do it. And so I I hope this morning to walk us through a little bit of scripture to show us what fasting is, why we ought to be doing it. And the main idea this morning is that fasting empties us to test our hunger for God. Fasting empties us to test our hunger for God. We're going to first ask the question, is there room for God in our full lives? Then we're going to move on and see how fasting empties us so we can be filled with God, but then also how fasting helps us hunger for God's work in the world. And that's where we're going to end up this morning. But the first point, is there room for God in our full lives? It's no secret that we have strong appetites. And I'm not just talking about food. I think when you read about fasting in scripture, you will often hear uh, of going without food or drink. But imagine going without anything. I I think it's meant to be a play on hunger. We hunger for food, but we hunger for other things in our lives. Our appetites are full and we have a buffet of good things, both food and non-food before us in life. The problem is that we get full on these good things. Listen to John Piper. He wrote a book called uh, Hunger for God on fasting and prayer. And in the early chapters, uh, he kind of gives this diagnosis. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. And I read that this week and I thought, that is exactly where my soul not just is normally and generally, but specifically in this season. It is so easy for me to get filled up entertainment and emotionally and list of tasks. And there's constantly things I need to be going and learning or I'm following this sports team or a a football season's getting ready to start or there's things around the house that I'm constantly thinking about doing or cooking or going and eating or the next vacation we're trying to, there's constantly things for me to be feasting on, just actually not feasting, just nibbling, snacking. And what happens when you snack long enough is you end up getting full. And it's not always the bad things that fill us up. It's actually a whole bunch of good things, but then they crowd out the best thing, God. Listen to Luke chapter 8, verses 11 to 15. Jesus is explaining a parable to his disciples. He says, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard the word. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And then the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they don't have any root. They believe for a while, and in the time of testing, they fall away. As for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, so they hear the word of God, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Our passion for God, our heart to receive God's word, our love for God can be choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. 
And as I was thinking about fasting, is there room for God in our full lives? I began to think about uh, my yard. I began to think about this love-hate relationship I have with my yard. I've been to some of your homes, and it's beautiful. You have these lush gardens and, like, really green, thick grass. I began to think about the love-hate relationship I have with my yard. I have dreams of that same thick grass, flowers and blue. You ever see, have you ever seen this uh, thing I have saved on Pinterest of this garden that you plant, and it has things that bloom year-round? I'm thinking, that would be incredible. I still struggle to tell you the difference between an annual and a perennial. I'm not just, I mean, I'm Googling every time we're at Home Depot. I'm not sure which one I need to get. I don't know how many hours of sun my yard gets. My grass gets laughably high. Don't drive by my house today because you'll think whatever dreams you have, you are far away from obtaining those dreams. Our house is in a neighborhood that backs up to a road, and we're just about 75 yards away from a pretty major creek. And so the kudzu and the mosquitoes are serious. And I've Tried more than once with Matthew's help to plant grass. And Matthew faithfully is like, let's do it. And look, when I say Matthew, I will help you, it's very clear who's doing the majority of the work. Matthew does the vast majority of the work. We've tried to plant grass. I've tried to plant flowers. I've tried to maintain my yard. And I have this love-hate relationship because you dream of a beautiful yard you get to play in. And the grass is wonderful. You don't want to wear shoes because it just looks like you're walking in uh, like something like C.S. Lewis would describe in Chronicles of Narnia. And not my house. And I don't see a future where it is my house. But I bet your yard, like my yard, actually needs two different kinds of work to actually achieve this kind of dream. I think it needs the work of resistance, and I think it needs the work of building. I think it needs first the work of resistance. I think I've got to regularly resist the growth of my grass, the invasion of kudzu that will come through, under, and over my fence. I think it needs uh, resistance against things like poison ivy and mosquitoes. Like, I've got to resist this overgrowth that's just going to take over my yard and just push it back. But what I've learned is if I just resist and I cut the grass and I trim the hedges, that doesn't necessarily mean that what's left there is beautiful. So I've got to resist and then I've got to build. I've got to take this empty space that I've just carved out in my yard and I've got to figure out how to get beautiful grass there. And I've got to go buy flowers and plant them and I've got to figure out how to make it beautiful. It takes the work of resistance and the work of building. And I think that's just like our lives. See, we think of spiritual disciplines and following Jesus mostly in terms of the positive, the work of building. I need to pray. I need to read my Bible. I need to go to church. I need to give. I need to do these positive things for God, with God, with God's people. But I think we fail sometimes to consider the work of resistance that we need to take part in. We need to both resist and build. But I think about fasting, Jesus is talking about a rhythm of resistance. By fasting, we are fighting against the invasive growth of the weeds of the world. We're fighting against the deformation of our souls and we're fighting against the slow takeover of our heart. Things that will choke out God's word. Things that will smother the growth of the Holy Spirit that he's trying to bring in our hearts and our lives. But we need these rhythms of resistance or else our lives will get so full of good things that there will be no room for God. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the community we live in, right? 
a community built on comfort and pleasure and having a yard. And let's be honest, this is one of the wealthier parts of Metro Atlanta, right? A lot of people around here take vacations at least once a year or you may have boats or multiple cars or multiple homes and you go to the mountains or the beach and this people move here because they want to go to the great schools. This community focuses really well on a lot of good things in life. Safety and schools are great. Beautiful homes. Going to the beach, I think, is beautiful because the Lord created it, and it's wonderful to go and enjoy it. But we can actually spend our lives focusing on these things in such a way that they take over our focus and our attention and our worship. Listen to 1 Peter 2. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain. That would be our word that falls in the resistance category. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. And here's what he says. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So in 1 Peter, we have Peter saying that there are things we should abstain from. We should resist. We should push back on. And then in 1 Corinthians, we have Paul saying that he disciplines his body. We've got to ask ourselves, is there room for God in our full lives? And maybe the step we need to take is not the classic, I need to read my Bible more, I need to pray more. Maybe we need to ask ourselves about these rhythms of resistance. What do I need to fast from because my heart is too attached to this thing? What do I need to have a day or a season of going without? I think there are some unique things we learn from fasting from food. Because you feel in your body the physical longings, hunger, as your stomach growls, maybe your focus begins to wane as the day goes on if you've ever fasted. I won't forget uh, recently, within the last couple of months, I have this idea that I'll fast every once in a while. I am far too attached to food. So I don't eat breakfast most days, lunch, dinner, I'm a full partaker of. And I don't eat breakfast this day, and I'm just loading up on coffee, drinking water. Uh, lunch hits. I kind of break through the, like, real hunger of noon, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock, I'm like, all right, I can, I can taste it. I can convince the family to eat an early dinner. We're going to make it. And I don't remember all the details surrounding. I'm sure Carrie could replay it in detail for you. But I don't remember all the details surrounding, like, getting home, what the dinner plan was, what it changed to. But I get home, and I'm just hangry. And I kind of felt like I just mailed in this day of fasting where I had felt like the spiritual giant who had somehow lasted 24 hours without food. And then I get home and just blow it. And she's like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I've been fasting today. That's what's wrong with me. But I think that shows just how eat up my heart is with needing something like food. But I wonder what else is it in our lives? What resistance do we need to embrace? What passions do we need to abstain from? 
What weeds in your life are growing up threatening to choke out your passion, your love for God? It could be food, it could be technology, it could be money, it could be possessions. Chances are, just talking about this, things are coming up in your mind that I'm not going to name, but you know. The key is that these aren't necessarily bad things, but if they're left unchecked, they will invade and take over. So what cares and riches and pleasures are threatening to choke out your heart for God? So as we fast and we embrace these rhythms of resistance, I think the purpose of fasting is that we would be emptied so we could be filled with God. And that's our next point this morning. Fasting empties us so we can be filled with God. Jesus says here in Matthew 6, just like he says about giving and praying, don't do it to get the reward from people so they all see you. Disfigure your faces and just act like how hungry you are. And everybody goes, wow, they must be hungry because they're fasting. What great, wonderful, spiritual people. No, he says, actually, do some normal hygiene things so people can't tell. But fast for your father who sees in secret. So why do we need to be emptied? It's not so we'll get praise from people. We need to be emptied for the secret reward of the father. We need to be emptied. We need these rhythms of resistance to be filled with God. And as we fast, our true hearts are gonna be revealed as we go without things. We talked about this with temptation, I think it was last week, where you only know how strong you are based on how much resistance you can face, and it's very similar with fasting. If you wanna know how much you love something, go without it. And that longing and that desire is going to grow the longer you go without that thing. And you're going to realize these moments, especially with food, is a great example of how you'll turn to food at times you may not be hungry, but to pacify an emotional desire or you're sad or you're anxious and you turn to those things and you'll begin to realize just how much you have come to depend on these things in our life. Fasting reveals our true hearts, and we often see how strong our desires really are for things other than God. So the chief motivation for all this, for fasting and everything, is that we would desire God over and above all of these things, even these good things. But it's only in the hunger of fasting and in the longing of the things we're going without that we realize how little we've depended on God. But it's also in those hungers and longings that we can then turn to God and ask him to meet us there. You don't realize how, what it means to be desperate for God until you don't have the things that typically pacify your desperation. When you feel hungry at lunchtime or at dinner time, and you're typically heading for the pantry, heading for lunch, heading for dinner, and instead you take those longings and desires and you begin to ask, wait a minute, God, do I long for you like this? Or do I keep this base level of creature comforts in my life to where I actually never know what it means to be in need? I never know what it means to be hurting or hungry or I never know. Because I keep this base level of comfort at all times. So we're then able to ask, do I hunger for God as much as I hunger for food? Do I long for the joy of Jesus as much as I long for the joy of TV and movies? Do I long for the treasure of heaven as much as I long for the treasure and riches of this world? Does my hunger for God compare to my hunger for other things? Fasting empties us so that we can be filled up with God. So in our fasting, we're not just talking about resisting things. We're talking about a replacement here. 
I resist. I go without food. I go without TV. I go without my phone. I go without something for a season, a period of time, a day. I go without so that then I can replace with the discipline of leaning into God. That would be a rhythm of building. We always need to replace rhythms of resistance with rhythms of building. So if I'm resisting through fasting, I'm going to say, God, how can I take this time I would be eating and spend with you? How can I take this time I would be watching TV every night and replace it with spending time with you? This doesn't mean this becomes a way of life every day for the rest of your days, but this does mean that there may be times and seasons you need to say, you know what, Uh, one day a week where I normally would spend a couple hours watching TV every night. I want to spend one day a week. I want to take those two hours a night and not do that. And what that's going to mean is you might not feel the hunger of going without food, but you're going to feel, this is a, a word we don't use often from the 1900s. Some of you may be familiar. Boredom. It might hurt a little. And uh, <laughs> Carrie and the kids came up here one day this week, and they Carrie picked them up from school. I mean, they're home for like an hour. They walk in the door, and as they open the door, I hear from one of them, I'm bored. You just got out of the car. But the constant entertainment, the constant engagement has taught our souls we need that. I need that pacifier. I need to be entertained. I need to see something moving. I mean, please don't go watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix or you'll learn just how dangerous social media is for you. Please don't go read the theory behind how they shoot movies and how you'll never see a shot more than just a few seconds because our minds will get bored. We are, we're just so, I mean, we really are just like, our attention is jumping all over the place. So if you choose to go without something like your phone or like TV or technology, that might be the pressing fast of our time. And one of the, a word for fasting from noise might be silence. That's a historic spiritual discipline. So maybe if you say, I need to fast from noise for a season, that might not look like all day, every day. Maybe you say, you know what, I need to spend 10 minutes this week. No noise. It's going to be silent. That doesn't mean you sit there and pray. That means you're quiet. Because we've come to depend on noise to distract us from things that are far more important. And as we're going without these things, we're teaching our soul to turn back to the Lord. We begin to spend more time in prayer and in scripture because we've resisted the other things that have been distracting us from that. And as we're in the middle of these longings and these hungers, we're able to tell God exactly what's on our heart. We're able to tell God exactly how hungry we are, exactly uh, how awful of an idea we think fasting really is when we're in the middle of it. We can tell him just how much we long for the things that we don't normally go without. And just how quickly we turn back to those just out of habit. And God meets us there. And God desires to form in us a heart that, longs for him more than all of those things. So we're resisting and we're resisting so that then we can turn and be filled up with God. But fasting not just has a, it doesn't just have a personal component of emptying me so I can be filled with God. That's certainly a major part of it. But it also has another component all throughout scripture of fasting helps us hunger for God's work in the world. 
Fasting helps us face the emptiness of the world so that we can long for God's work to be done and for his kingdom to come. We need a holy discontentment with the way things are going in the world. And we need, I say not just a discontentment, we need a holy discontentment. A discontentment can be solved with all sorts of social work and political changes. But a holy discontentment can only be solved by God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. So are we living for God's purposes or for our purposes? Are we in tune with what God's doing in the world? Are we in tune with just how broken and messed up things are around us and in the world? And I read an author say a few months ago in a book, like he became shocked with himself at how easily he could scroll past news stories of horrific things happening and how desensitized his soul has become to those things. So I, I started to watch for those. Like, no matter what it is. And I'm not offering a solution to any of these things. And I'm not, you know me, I'm not taking a political stance on any of these, but, but when we see like a bombing in another country or one country invade another or a shooting in a school... Do our hearts still break and say, God, this is not the way it was supposed to be? When we see tragedies happen in the world, do we ever turn to fasting to say, God, things shouldn't be like this? Or do we just keep on keeping on, try to maintain this low level of comfort to kind of insulate us from how bad things can be in other places? Do we long for the gospel to go forward? When was the last time we really asked God to help us reckon with the reality that millions of people die and don't know Jesus every minute? I mean, have we really said, God, wait, wait a minute, this is much bigger than I've, I don't want to think about, that's, that's awful to think about. I don't want to consider how awful that is. I don't want to consider the fact that there's people around the world and across the street that don't know Jesus. But if we come to realize just how heartbreaking it is that people don't know the Savior who loves them and laid his life down so they could have life. If we understand just how heavy of a thing that is, we might turn to fasting to say, God, I want to beg you to work in the world. Do we long for God's kingdom to advance? Are we fasting and praying for particular areas of brokenness in our world? Things like sex trafficking. Uh, in our gospel community uh, is Brian and Alex Stowers. They're not here this morning. They're in North Carolina being with Brian's parents. Uh, his dad's having surgery tomorrow morning, so they're up there spending a few days. And so she was texting us prayer requests Friday, and she works for an organization that is just recently headquartered in Alpharetta, called, I think, Kids Alive. Uh, I think that's what it's called. And so they do all sorts of um, helping vulnerable children around the world um, via adoption, safe, uh, safe homes, rescuing kids out of all sorts of abusive or traffic situations. And they have homes all over the world in all these different countries. So, I mean, she's sending a specific prayer request of like, hey, there's a, there's a child in a Central American country and uh, was going to testify in court, but then they've released the person she's testifying against, just no bail like you're released until the trial. 
And then there's all these threats now coming from him, who's a powerful political figure, against this chi- his child that he abused. And that is one of tens of thousands of stories like that, that she could tell us. She has told us and asked us to pray for these things. They have a ministry that we're praying about what, what's our role in this called Safe Haven, where as they rescue, they have such a great relationship in these countries. What happens is the governments begin to trust kids alive. And so then they will find these kids or rescue these kids out of horrific situations, whether that's sex trafficking or abuse or just human trafficking in general. And they'll begin to turn to kids alive and say, do you have a place to put them? So they created this whole wing of their ministry called Safe Haven where they try to instill in these kids life skills, but also just confidence. They give them these truth cards where they can read truths every day of who they are and what God thinks of them and who God is. And they're trying to give these kids a path towards life that they didn't have before. When was the last time we fasted and prayed about a particular area of brokenness like that? And said, God, only you, only you, God, can bring a redemption that deep. In Isaiah 58, three to six, it says this, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Whenever something like that's happening in the Old Testament, rest assured, the problem lies with the people, not with God, okay? So the response, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Now he begins to show you the positive view of fasting. It's a time to humble yourself. Is it a time, is it, is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes, signs of mourning? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. The Lord is giving us some instruction on fasting here, that we would face the brokenness of the world and that we would long for God's work to happen in the world. Or what about Ezra 8, 21 to 23? Ezra's leading a group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves and our children and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God, implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Catch what Ezra is saying. The reason I gave the king for why we wanted to go back is that God's hand was for us, and God's hand would protect us. Ezra, I think being a wise man, realized if I say that and then on my way out go, oh, one more thing. Can you send this whole, these forces to protect us on the way so that enemies don't kill us before we get there? Now, instead of doing that, he says, no, wait a minute. I just said God's hand was for us. So rather than turning and depending on the king, what if I actually turned and depend on the God whose hand I said is on us? Man, I... I 
I hear, a pra- I hear sometimes a saying about prayer that I think people have a good heart who say it, but it's like, pray like it all depends on God and work like it all depends on us. Let's, let's not. Let's not do that. Because actually, it, that's what's gotten us in this mess. We pray like it all depends on God, and then when we're done praying, we say amen, and then we go try to live like it all depends on us. God, I need you to provide. I need you to provide. I need you to provide. Then we say amen, get in our car, and go, and we try to provide for ourselves. When was the last time we were as desperate as Ezra? I mean, he could have gotten forces to protect him. He could have asked the king. I mean, the king probably would have helped him, right? But instead, he said, we've got to fast and pray humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves. What about these stories in Acts? Acts 13, verses two and three. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And you, you all are a faithful people, I shall offer, and I love you. There are things I wish we were better at here. There are things I wish we could start and do. And I've got to ask myself, as the pastor, when was the last time I was so desperate for God to do something in our church that I was fasting and praying for it? And where's that line in my heart where I say, this is so serious, I want to fast and pray, and then this is like, no, we don't need to fast and pray about that. I mean, just... Go, go ask some volunteers or just go, I mean, we can go handle that. Like, this is not serious enough. We just need X and then the problem will be solved. No, wait, what, what if the things in our church were so serious that we were fasting and praying saying, God, you have to build this thing. You have to do the work here. Or Acts 14, 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And this is about appointing leaders because leaders matter in churches. Do we desire God's wisdom in our church? Do we desire for him to raise up church leaders? Do we want to commit all of us to the Lord? I mean, maybe we ought to take the point of frustration at this that you have here in this body. Maybe it's a point that's caused you a little bit of hesitancy on fully diving in. And what if we took that to the Lord in fasting and in prayer? said, do it, Lord. If you've sat through a membership interview with me, maybe you, I try to say this, maybe I missed it, but uh, I try to always say, just because you see us not doing something doesn't mean we don't want to do it. There's lots of things we want to do that we're not doing right now. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the leaders. We don't have the people. Am I too okay with that? Have I just resigned myself? That's just not for us right now. Or other things that the Lord is actually asking us, hey, I've got it, and I'm willing to give it. But you've not asked. You've not fasted and prayed that you would see my work in your world. So we might fast for those who don't know Jesus. We might fast for a certain injustice in the world or for our own church family. You might fast for your own family. You might fast for your own kids. We might fast and beg God to break through in spiritual 
power. And as we're emptied of the things that we typically depend on to give us this power, we're going to be emptied of those things as we fast. We're going to be emptied. We're, we're going to find out just how quickly our strength goes away. If you listen to a, guy, a lot of guys in the military will then turn and start these great organizations equipping civilians for whether it's survival or protection or things like that. And uh, go listen to some of these people. And one of the things they'll say about survival is we're typically like nine meals away from death. Like in your house, like you might have enough to cover you for nine meals. What happens after that? Can you go find a meal somewhere if you had to go pull it out of the ground or shoot it in the woods? I don't think I could. And it makes me think like a stat like that. I go, oh my goodness, I'm way more fragile than I realized. Like I don't have that much strength. I don't have that much self-sufficiency as I thought I had and puffed out my chest. Like I can take care of myself and my family. No, no, I'm actually very fragile. You want to know how fragile and how weak you are? Go, go without food for a day two or three or four or five go without and you'll go oh my goodness i don't have any power as we're emptied of the things we typically depend on to give us power fasting is a time to beg god to pour out his spiritual power on us so i was thinking about fasting getting full on things that are good but not ultimate i couldn't help but think about something i heard as a kid I think from my parents, maybe more from my grandparents. Uh, my dad's parents were really um, great, great people, country people. So at their house, I remember going and uh, they would always have Reese's Pieces. I don't know why that was the candy of choice, but uh, would, would always eat Reese's Pieces. And they would give us like three at a time. When I was like nine, I was like, like, what, what are we doing here? What's the game? And I just remember, maybe you've heard this. Remember I'm saying, they're going to spoil your dinner. They'll spoil your dinner. And if you're not, I know we have a lot of people not from the South. You might see a word like spoil or oil. It's spoil and oil. You're going to spoil your dinner. Don't spoil your dinner. And as a kid, I thought, don't worry. I'm going to be fine. Keep them coming. Now, on the other side, being a parent, being an adult, I've seen the times they've eaten too much and spoiled their dinner. I've seen the time they've had one too many cliff bars from the drawer and spoiled their dinner and not eaten what we had cooking. And I wonder if this passage is Jesus' way of saying, don't spoil your dinner. Like, you're going to go snack and snack and snack, and you're going to spoil your dinner. That's essentially the warning of fasting. Are you going to snack around and get full on all these things? Or are you willing to embrace a rhythm of resistance where you push back and say, you know what, uh, this week I'm going to go without this. And you're going to have to figure out what that is for you. I, I know there's medical reasons you should not go without food. But there may be times you need to go without food for a meal. Or maybe a certain kind of food. Or a certain kind of drink. Or technology, your phone. or But I, I think... We would do well to all of us consider this week, God, what does this look like for me to embrace a rhythm of resistance so that I can be filled up with you? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you very much. We're grateful that you'd give us the hard words like this about fasting. And I think I'm the one that's got to say, whoa, wait, back up. I'm supposed to be doing that? 
Because Jesus, it's hard to go without things that I've learned to depend on my whole life. Jesus, I like to be full of food. I like to be well rested. I like to have entertainment at my fingertips. But Christ, would you show me the way that those things are crowding out a hunger for you in my heart? And I'd be, I pray we'd be a church that so loved you, that so desired to see your work in the world, your work in our world, that we'd fast and pray that it would be so. Put those issues, those burdens on our heart that we would fast and pray about, God. God, I love this church so much. I'm so thankful that I get to be here. And I'm so thankful that you've brought us to this season of having to consider this rhythm of resistance, God. It's hard, it's not easy, but God, I think you'll meet us there. You'll show us the way forward and you'll invite us into a deeper life with you if we'll obey you in this. In Jesus' name we pray.